writing to global state and just sort of having payments work, smart contracts, anything like that, sort of just be accessible from your app the way messaging and ID are on Urbit, you know, should be a thing. And so basically we're just doing the work to sort of unify that primitive into Urbit. So the word I keep using over and over the phrase is unifying over primitives. And our current systems just don't present a unified software interface for them. And once you have that, programming is a lot more fun. All right, what's up, everybody? This is Other Life. I am Justin Murphy. I just wanted to let you know that I write a free newsletter to thousands of people every week. It's where I publish my best work. I share events that you can come to and much more. We have an insane private community around the newsletter, and it's free. Go check it out. Just go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. When you subscribe, I'm going to send you a folder of PDFs that contain all of my personal highlights from a bunch of my favorite books that I've read over the years. So you'll get a million insights after just a few minutes of browsing these PDFs, really. They're really special to me, and I just figured I'd share them with you all. So that's otherlife.co, otherlife.co. All right, Tim. So I would say that you're something of a legend in the Urbit ecosystem. You built the Bitcoin wallet for Urbit. You also pretty much wrote the book on developing user-facing applications on Urbit. And you're now the founder of what many people think is the most exciting and game-changing startup being built on Urbit, which we'll talk about later. But to begin, I want to I tell you something that someone told me about you once. And I want you to just tell me if it's true or false, okay? So I forget who, but a year ago or something like that, someone uh, told me that you, in a just world, you would be one of the highest paid software engineers in a big tech company. But for whatever reason, didn't happen that way. They couldn't find a place for you. And now you are on a war path to overthrow all of them. True or false? <laughs> I think the general sentiment is correct. Like, I see what they're going for. I think software engineer probably isn't where it would be. Like, I'm a pretty good software engineer in a different world. Uh, like, maybe one that sort of should have happened. Probably I would have... In a world that's probably better, I just go and work in San Francisco making like, you know, 150K a year in 2013 or something and buy Bitcoin. And like everything I did in the middle of that is like, you know, would have been like worse than that outcome. I think that probably in terms of what I'm on a warpath to destroy, it's something much, it's partly that. It's actually much less big tech and it's much more, let's say, everything that happened socially, economically, and sort of lifestyle-wise for, let's call them U.S. elites in the 2005 to 2020 period. Like specifically this like one period where the right move socially, uh, like financially, whatever, was to first, you know, for probably 2005 to the early 2010s, live in New York and do finance or something related to that, even if you're in tech. And then after that, you know, be in the Bay Area doing, you know, doing startups or being in that whole thing. And when they say I'm on the warpath against it, I think I find a lot of stuff there extremely inefficient, kind of boring. I like a lot of the people in it. Like I'm friends with them. They're from my world, but it's just, it's just boring to be honest. And so, and, and also I think that it locks you into very specific places physically. And I dislike that. Like just, it's very much an aesthetic sensibility thing. So they're directionally correct. I just don't know if they're correct about the specific job. 
Okay, fair enough. Now, I, I think also you're a Harvard guy. Tell us a little bit about your path or your history as an engineer and, and, and walk us up to the point where you decided to go all in on Urbit. Okay, so when I started, I'm like sort of one of the standard stories where, you know, I taught myself how to program when I was 14 or 15, uh, did computer science at Harvard, let's say, like quite literally before it was cool. So now I think like if you take the average CS class sizes there, it's been, it's in, I don't know, five, 600 people. It's like an insane amount of each entering freshman class does computer science there. When I was there, it was like, you know, maybe, I don't know, 20, 25, 30 people that you would like notice there's like, you know, the two girls who were doing it that year. Uh, it was, it was just a very, very small world. So this was, and in terms of people coming out of that, uh, you know, I was in, it was the same year as Zuckerberg. So he left like, you know, my sophomore year, he was in our classes. Um, and then, but I think the reason this is all relevant is that that wasn't a time when being a computer programmer was very prestigious. Like I was literally just doing it because I was good at it and I didn't want to write papers. Like I really disliked writing papers when I was in high school and early college. And so computer science, you didn't have to do a thesis and you could sort of choose your electives to get around that. So it was you know, something I was good at that I didn't have to do stuff that I didn't like. And so the reason that's relevant is that then after college, because the career opportunities weren't super lucrative, like I could, I could get a job fairly, fairly easily in that, but it wasn't that interesting or making that much money. So I basically just went and lived overseas for a long time. Like about, I think after graduating, it must have been like seven or eight years, something like that. Doing, you know, the usual stuff people do over there, like a heavy amount of like, you know, SAT prep. Um, didn't do, I did like a little, like when I first started a little bit of ESL, like when I was living in sort of pretty ghetto Ukraine, like circa 2007, 2008. Um, but then I was mostly in like Asia doing sort of, you know, the college prep type stuff. And so... Okay, I was, so, yeah, so I'll leave it, I'll leave it there for now. <laughs> well, no, but so go up to crypto and then Urbit. Yeah. So up to, so up to crypto is around 2011, 2012, I got back into development again, just in my spare time and started doing more and more. And then never, I've actually never worked a job since I was maybe 17 where you would get a paycheck for programming. Uh, I just did stuff on my own and then did businesses with my friends where they would find different like opportunities in online marketing and stuff. And I would write like the backends for it and we would split the profits. And that obviously was extremely adjacent to crypto. So I started investing in that, doing, you know, doing other stuff there, writing solidity things for like help, um, you know, helping people in the 2017 ICO boom, like, you know, writing, like writing stuff there. And that pretty much took me to stuff. If you were in crypto at that time, like it was a good time to be there. And so by 2000, then you had the crash in 2018, but I still like from like doing software contracting crypto, I was in a position where I didn't really have to work anymore. And so I didn't, and I was pretty, probably pretty boring. I kind of just sat around. I moved like back to Ukraine, hung out, um, and was just like spending all my time just, you know, learning Russian, not like doing any like serious projects. And it was right around this time when I found Urbit. So I knew about it since my like Ethereum days, I had kind of briefly glanced at it in 2017 and been like, oh, this is cool, but I think everything they're doing, I can just do on Ethereum, which is, it's funny because I'll still see people saying things like that now who kind of come through 
my pipeline, although that's less of a commonly held opinion. It was a really dumb opinion, but you know, that's how I felt about it. And let me think where that, like, okay. So end of 2019, I found Urbit through a friend I had worked with who had been, you know, auditing stuff uh, in Solidity. And, um, and he was, I think, like living at the time, or he had, no, he had uh, Ted, like Rob Nisrickfer living in his house occasionally. And he was like, oh, my friend Ted's here. He's working on Urbit. He says it's going great, but I think it's going to, you know, totally flop. And it seems horrible. And so I started playing with it and I could understand what he was thinking. I don't know. Were you around in late 2019, like in Urbit? Um, only, only very tangentially. Like Ted actually came on my podcast, I think sometime around then, but I was only a kind of a okay. friendly, distant observer. Yeah, yeah, it was. But say more about unless them. you. It was pretty. It was pretty unusable at that point if you were not like a hardcore power user. And so I played with it. I definitely thought there was something here. Looking back, I don't know why I thought that. Like, if you look at my Urbit conviction in like let's say June, 2020, it makes a lot of sense and it kind of looks like prescient or you know what's going on. In late 2019, man, I, I don't know what I like. I think what I liked about it is it did feel like there was an actual new internet with people having their own computers, but that was about it. And you, you had to really extrapolate. I didn't have any grand theses about why Urbit would be really good. And so because of that, I kind of I kind of dropped it at that point. I was still around. I still knew how to boot an Urbit and I would go in occasionally and check what was going on. Like at that point, if anything interesting had happened in Urbit, I would have stayed aware of it and jumped back in. But I kind of went to, you know, I started just spending my time like I think I was like, you know, making like Boston Celtics highlight videos or stuff like, like stuff like that. I was just very, like, it, it was, it didn't have enough to like engage me, which is actually my Twitter account now. Right. Right. Actually comes from that period. It started as like a highlight video account. Okay. So when was it um, and how was it that you first realized like, holy shit, this is going to melt faces. So I started getting really serious with it. It was the very beginning of May, 2020, during COVID. My son was born then. I was stuck in the hospital with him for about a week because he was born prematurely. He was totally fine, but I had to wait there. And in the time, I did what I kind of always do when I'm stuck places, which is I start trying to learn something or figuring it out. And for whatever reason, the thing I decided to learn was knock. Like I was, so I guess that means I was still around in Urbit, and I think I had been looking at learning Hoon. And at that time, all of the Hoon tutorials said something like, you know, don't do knock. It's too hard. It's scary. Just, you know, skip to doing Hoon. And I was, you know, because I was bored and I had time, I was like, okay, I'll see if I can figure this out more. I did. And I think I also realized, okay, this can be explained way better. So I went and wrote up a tutorial and that also seemed like a good way into the Urbit community in terms of like sort of a proof of work. Like, okay, I can do enough to at least hang here somewhat or know what's going on. And then I wanted to do the same thing for normal system programming in Urbit because it was very clear that the current guides didn't let you do that. And so that got me into writing the Gall guide, which I think up until it was substantially improved about six to nine months ago was what everyone used uh, in order to onboard to Urbit user space programming. 
And that, and what happened while I was doing that was Urbit got a lot faster. It was in June 2020, and people have probably talked about this on the show, or maybe you remember it. There was some specific performance improvements made, and it went from, you know, you would send a chat message and it would go through 45 seconds later to this felt like, you know, Discord. And at that point, I think I became very, very bullish because I had this broad intuition that there was something very powerful here. And very like and very cool that they were getting at, and also that it could be iterated on fast in ways that were noticeable and would blow through, very you know various performance problems. And at that point, you know, over that summer, I was working on it really hard. I started writing, you know, lots of things about how Urbit was going to take over the world, like sort of internal memos to people I was talking with. And I think a lot of it aged pretty badly in terms of my reasoning for it, and which is, I think. I think in general, if that's not happening, something's wrong. Like you want, you want it to be going a lot, but I got very bullish because it was clear there were really smart people here. And then I got insanely bullish when I became technical director of the foundation in early 2021 and was onboarding people. And I saw that Hoon was way easier to learn than people thought. You could get them on without too much trouble. We had more and more people coming on, especially like they were usually like fairly young, like a lot of late teens, early twenties programmers. And there was this like exponential effect where those people would then do stuff or hang out or make it easier for other people to come on. And at that point, I just like, I think by, and I would see the kinds of apps they would make. And by that summer, I was, I was pretty much like, you know, this is, this is going to work. I was extremely all in on it, but I think it's like the difference between believing in God and believing in gravity. Like I think 2020 Urbit was like believing in God. Like, like, you know, this sort of, you know, intellectual, like, I'm not, I'm not religious, but like, you know, you know what I mean? And then believing in gravity is like, you know, you're going to step off and die if you don't pay attention to this. Okay. Awesome. That, that's, that's great story there. So you alluded to before that you basically wrote the book on, uh, the Gaul, on the Gaul guide. You, that's basically the, the, the Urbit user space. It's all about how to build applications facing users. Mm -hmm. And so maybe for the engineers, the engineers and the investors in my audience, you know, what would you say is the most important thing about Urbit apps and Urbit app development that, that people on the outside don't understand? The most important thing is that all of the current tools and operating systems that we use, whether you're talking about a client operating system like, you know, uh, Linux or, you know, a mobile one uh, or a backend operating system like AWS or something like that, is that they don't use software to unify over all the components you want. And so the classic example that every programmer in your audience would relate to is when your non-technical friend comes to you and asks you whether you could build X, right? They'll come to you and they'll be like, dude, could you like make something where, you know, it takes all of my Twitter followers and puts them into a DAO where they can vote whether to issue a token. And then it'll update that token on Ethereum if enough of them vote for it, but they can kick out and like, but then once you have that token, you can vote for which tweets I'll send and it'll automatically post the winning tweet for me. And for the person who wins the tweet, they'll get a power boost in their future voting like something like that, right? And the reason your friend is asking you that is because, and he, he could be like actually very smart, even though I'm giving him like a, you know, Bill and Ted voice, but he, he intuits that this is this, you know, this stuff is all like Turing complete. Like it's all connected in some way. He's using it all like on his machine. He knows programmers can wire it up if you like, you know, 
really get them to do it. And so if I say that exercise to a programmer though, that feels incredibly hard. If I told him and like, and yeah, bro, I'll give you $25,000 to do it. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll find excuses to stop talking to your friend for a week before, until he like kind of, you know, lets this, lets this idea go. Right. And the reason is that all we're talking about a lot of components there that didn't exist when either, you know, let's say, you know, Linux, Windows were for, or just general single player operating systems were made or when, uh, you know, or aren't, you know, very well unified on like an AW, in the AWS cloud. I mean, when I say unified, I just mean there's like a piece of software that presents them all as a, as one interface where a person writing the program can say, you know, hit the blockchain and do this or grab Tim's social graph and do this. Right. And so that, and so I'm trying to like, actually, I'm getting like a little bit lost and you're trying to remember back to what you were asking, but which is like, what is, what is Urbit solving? Well, specifically though, when it comes to developing apps, because I think for most software engineers, that's kind of what, you know, that, that, that's the way that people naturally think about what it means to develop, you know, interesting, useful things on a computer for users. Right. And so Urbit obviously is this more complex architecture, but, um, specifically focusing on app development you know, for people out on the outside looking in, like what are just some facts or features or, or realities about what's unique, what's unique about building apps on Urbit that people should know about that they don't currently know about? Sure. Everything I was talking about, all those pieces on Urbit, you have the chance to get them in one place, sort of batteries included. And the best way to say it is that everything you need to do in the course of making an app from deploying it to users, to authenticating them, to, you know, sending messages between them, or we're going to, it just, it puts that all into an actual like package and orchestrates it with software. So I actually don't think that Urbit is more complex in any sense. It's definitely not more complex in the sense of like the actual operating system. And it's not more complex in the sense of programming it, like programming it, is simpler and all the ways in which it has complexity are places where Urbit actually isn't ready yet. So for example, there's this common operation that you wanna do if you have peer-to-peer -peer apps of some form, which is subscribe to that other peer and just listen for messages from them. And this is something that Urbit provides for free really well in theory, but it isn't fully like ready yet. And so there's actually a lot of complexity right now in terms of using that. And when that's fixed, which it will be fairly soon, that goes away both at the you know operating system level and also for programmers where you can just it's this feeling of just being able to assume that things just work and so in urbit a lot of stuff just works and that's like another good example i use is for the guy who's currently our lead developer on ukbar like hadzad walrus who has done a variety of you know talks at some of the conferences recently um he got into it about a year ago in the summer as doing sort of an apprenticeship internship with me where i basically said okay, go write a head, like a heads up poker app where two people play poker with each other using a central server to kind of adjudicate the game and say, you know, who the, like who the winner is, et cetera. And that's actually kind of annoying in a traditional, you know, architecture. You're going to have to decide how to deploy it probably in the cloud so that the central server keeps running, handle all of the authentication, like have some system set up where people register, have some system for stopping spam and registering. Um, any, you know, it'll probably be linked to their emails in some form, have password recovery, uh, the authentication part of that. Then you're going to have to handle all the messaging back and forth. Probably the central server will keep some database and push it out to them. 
everything I just said in Urbit, because it unifies over the components you actually want, which is like identification, messaging, um, authentication, he just wrote that and he was like, oh, this like, you know, this just works. And he was able to write the app incredibly fast. It was very fun. And actually the main weakness of the app was that people were, at, were playing with it at last year's assembly. And it was pretty cool from what I heard. Uh, I played it some with him. It actually felt like, you know, the old days of like online poker 10 years ago, which is another thing that of course I did because everyone with my bio and my age, like did that. Um, Same. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like when it was, was easy to make a lot of money. There's not a lot of alpha left there. Yeah. There's there's not a lot of alpha left there. It was it was very it was very fun and you know probably not so much more it can teach me. But anyway, point point being, he the main thing it was missing was some kind of integration where you could do uh, payments or crypto or bet money or record you know record anything there. And that actually highlights a really big weakness of Urbit where I don't want to get too far into Ookbar right now, but basically the idea of Ookbar is just that uh, writing to global state and just sort of having payments work, smart contracts, anything like that, sort of just be accessible from your app the way messaging and ID are on Urbit, you know, should be a thing. And so basically we're just doing the work to sort of unify that primitive into Urbit. So the word I keep using over and over, the phrase is unifying over primitives. And our current systems just don't present a unified software interface for them. And once you have that, programming is a lot more fun. And to the degree that programming on Urbit isn't fun and fast now, it's because we haven't fully done those primitives and unified them. Right. Okay. So I, I recently listened to your conversation with Galen on the uh, Tlon TV podcast or YouTube channel. And one of the things you said there that I thought was interesting was that you said, you feel that Urbit already has product market fit for developers, for, for the developer experience. In other words, people who learn to develop on Urbit just really, really enjoy it. They really, really like it. It clicks fast and easy and effectively. And so I thought that that was a very interesting phrase that you use because I think from the outside, if you're an engineer or an investor kind of watching Urbit from afar, you would say, oh, well, that sounds actually kind of crazy, right? Because most people, a lot of, there are a lot of developers who are super skeptical of Urban and think it's crazy and think Hoon is ridiculous or whatever, all, all the kind of, um, you know, o o exaggerated memes out there that are, um, you know, kind of negative flack on Urbit. And so it's kind of a bold statement to say that Urbit has product market fit for developers. Maybe you could unpack that by starting with, I, I want you to kind of explain why, if that is the case, that the developer experience is so good. What are the remaining bottlenecks or roadblocks that ha that that still haven't made uh, like a massive, massive um, migration into Urbit by developers? The the best way to think about the bottlenecks is that it's very possible for something to have extremely strong product market fit for developers. Meaning, developers will use this if they have the chance in substantial numbers. Right. It's possible to have that, but also to have other things messed up such that those developers uh, either won't have an audience to like get their to get their stuff out to, or they won't be able, the system doesn't unify over all the primitives that they need. And so they just can't build all the types of applications they would want, even though they love this. Um, or just there's something like a little bit unstable about the system or something like that that doesn't let it get there. And so I think it's extremely uncontroversial to say that Urbit has product market fit with developers just based on when I started programming on it and writing how to program on it less about a little over two years ago. 
there was me and like a few other developers. And now it's, you know, talking to uh, Will Ref Podlex, the foundation, uh, it's very clearly in the, you know, sort of over 100, less than 300 territory, which is like extremely strong growth and shows no sign of slowing down. You know, the most recent Hoon School was like 60 people. There's very rapid growth there. So we're at that point, which is probably analogous to if you look at the early 2000s essays of Paul Graham, uh, which I think most of a lot of your audience would be very familiar with just because they were extremely influential and where he would kind of raps um, poetic about, uh, about Lisp and how much he loved it. But also he was making the case for, you know, if you like Python, use it, which kind of felt revolutionary at the time. Or if you like, um, you know, Ruby, use it. There were all these other languages that weren't, you know, C, like C++ uh, or Java that were becoming usable um, and they all had product market fit. Programmers loved them, you know, different ones, but until server-side programming became a thing and an extremely economically valuable thing in the early 2000s, they didn't have any place to apply, like, to apply that. And so the bottleneck was, an, are enough people on the internet and do those people need services that you can provide, sort of want services that you can provide by having rich backends? And it turned out that, you know, very quickly, uh, you know, social applications were found, all kinds of like SaaS stuff. And that's, you know, now the predominant model. So for Urbit, the main bottlenecks are one, just making all the primitives rock solid. Right now, you can only store up to two gigabytes on your, like on your Urbit. That's obviously just not an option for the long term, it needs to be logically in the terabytes. Uh, that because that limits the type of applications you can write a lot. It doesn't have easy crypto access right now. It's a slog to do. So we're working on that. That seems very promising and likely to get unclogged. Things like uh, software upgrades and handling dependencies uh, are getting better. They're you know probably ten or a hundred times probably a hundred times better than two years ago. Still needs like work to be like you know really tight. And so that's at the kind of what are the things you can do with the system? Then there's the question of, can you get it in people's hands? And if we stay on the topic of server-side programming, the big win there, or one of the big wins, was that you could get it in people's hands very easily because you could keep it in the company's hands. You could just develop the program on your servers and they could access it through their, through their laptop. Sorry, through their computer. It wasn't laptops at the time. Um, in Urbit's case, I actually think this one just will work. I think that the big win of Urbit is unifying over all these primitives and uh, ease of distribution of software once people have Urbits, and it's less things about privacy that people sort of get into. And so for that reason, I think that doing Urbit as a, uh, like a hosted service will, will likely have very strong product market fit. Probably a lot of companies in Urbit will be doing it as a loss leader. Oh, interesting. Say more about that. Like what, uh, what, what types of, um, expectations do you have around that? Like how, what would that look like? We already know what it would look like because companies like third earth are providing it. Urbit host had it before, and then they kind of took a step back to go to start working more closely with Talon to develop the stuff. Most of the tricks with it are not that hard and mostly are dependent on things like just making Urbit faster, use less resources, stuff that's like very much coming, you know, down the, like down the pipe fairly soon. And so what that would look like is most likely there's some reason that you want to use Urbit. There's some app 
that's you know that people that people are using it for. Uh, I think it's most likely to be in the crypto space right now with where things are going. Although it could be something social plus crypto or something like that. And probably what will happen is I think the base cost for companies to offer that will be somewhere between probably two to ten dollars a month. I think we're already under ten for things like Third Earth. Maybe they're at twelve for what they offer, but it's you know the, the cost of the company is low. And they'll probably give you some kind of, you know, get on Urbit for free for a month type thing. There's a lot of ways to provide this. Even get on Urbit for $10 and do a subscription is pretty easy if that $10 is done with crypto in some, like, in some way like that. Right. Something I think also people don't uh, fully appreciate yet is that, I mean, we're really going through this phase right now where just the accumulation of, of SaaS apps that people have to pay for. It's, it's really quite tremendous. It's like, if you're doing anything on the internet, that's non-trivial, maybe you're not even a business, right? You're just, um, you know, an ambitious creator or you like building things. Um, you know, the no, the no code phenomenon is really pretty interesting and really cool and empowering in many ways. Uh, you can build really cool, badass systems and, and products online without even coding nowadays. The problem is to do so in any non-trivial way, you have to pay for a ton of different services. And it, you know, those bills really, really rack up. And one of the kind of, you know, real kind of sleeping, hidden, uh, exciting things about Urbit that people are, are really not aware of yet is that a lot of that stuff is going to become free on Urbit. So yeah, maybe you pay 20, 10 bucks a month or 15 bucks a month for, to host your planet in a cloud, but then you get access to all of these applications where the developers of those applications are facing totally different economics. They don't need to charge you a monthly bill to grow their, you know, VC backed startup because the code for that app just sits, just sits in the cloud. It just sits There's... in a peer-to-peer -peer network, right? That doesn't, yeah. So say more about that. I don't want to go over these advantages too much because I'm guessing your other guests have, or maybe people are aware of it, but you could either say the software will be free. There will be more just only one-time payments. It would, could be cheaper. Everything about it, uh, it'll be a lot easier for the developer to maintain. If you're a developer and you release something and you're at all serious about it, maintaining it is really hard. And Urban apps actually have a way of like being a lot easier to maintain, especially when they're Urban internal. And don't have to hit external APIs, which is, you know, one thing that's one thing that's really important. But then you even get into, I don't think that non-developers understand how involved the process is of deploying an application and keeping it out there. And so when I said earlier that I think that actually privacy in Urbit is a bit of a red herring. And the reason is that people are already fine putting tons of information into like, you know, these SaaS apps and stuff like that. And they're not happy because they're paying a lot. The information doesn't compose with any other information that they have. It's not accessible, very importantly, to sort of enterprising new young developers who want to come in and like combine that information in interesting ways, which always happens if it's composable. Uh, the DevOps are brutal for the company. To keep it like to keep it deployed, I think VCs are sort of aware of this, but they probably don't viscerally feel how crappy the gap is between like I wrote an app that works on my local machine and I got it deployed for lots of people to use. They're completely different things. Like you have to like write you're writing your app in one environment and then you're deploying it in like this sort of cloud OS, which is this place where. Your app's language doesn't even matter. It's just going to sort of live in this little matrix pod with other ones. And you have to pay lots of money to like keep that going and orchestrate it with all the other pods. It's brutal. So 
I don't even know which angle to start on here with regard to SaaS, but that, that model is completely choking off innovation right now to a crazy degree. And it's not solvable without an operating system to orchestrate those pieces. It's just not. You, you got at this in your social AI article recently, so I, I'll assume people have read that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think it's a selling point that's really exciting. And one of the reasons why, why I'm super motivated on Urbit and trying to do everything I can to help it is because I'm just honestly really pumped for this world where we can all develop cool apps and um, have interesting software running on our computers with each other. And we're not paying out the ass for all these SaaS apps. Um, you know, so it's like, you know, if you're like, if you're like a... Uh, rapidly scaling, growing startup or something like that. Yeah, sure. The, then, you know, the software as a service model is relatively affordable and, and it's actually quite, you know, powerful, the types of, uh, you know, leverage you can get from these SaaS apps. But people don't even realize that there's a whole world of potential innovation and creativity and value creation that people can do who are no, that who are not who don't want to be professional developers who don't want to build a startup there's just cool stuff that we can do with our computers together really really cool really really valuable stuff that doesn't necessarily uh fit the the startup mold and for those types of projects which are currently not even being developed by anyone anywhere because they're economically not yeah. even thinkable so we don't even experience them as we don't even experience them as a lack like we don't the average mm -hmm. person doesn't feel like oh wow i'm suffering from all of these cool things i can't build because we've so naturalized the SaaS model we just take it for granted as reality but there's going to be a massive amount of creative value creating uh applications and uh ex ex you know experimentation that is going to become economically vi viable on urbit could you go into listeners for a bit or I can of like just how you define the SaaS model? Because for me, there's like very specific components of that that are very specifically retarding software progress. And it's, it's important to like make sure. Oh, OK. About that. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I come at this from the angle of, of uh, you know, what they now call it is nowadays call creator or whatever. It's such a corny term. But yeah, so people who are, you know building operations on the internet, whether it's, you know, um, you know, creating value for people um, at, with an audience. And there are lots of different cool things you can do using SaaS apps, right? And SaaS apps for people who don't know, it's just, it's just basically um, like a web application that you pay a monthly or annual subscription for, and it gives you some power, right? Uh, they do the developers and the founders of these startups you know, will um, let you pay a certain amount each month and they'll give you some, you know, convenient UI that will do on their servers, on their backend, certain, you know, uh, things and, and you name it, right? From it, from hosting a community and giving you the, the software and the UI to have a community uh, of people interacting and posting things and sharing each other, sharing things with each other. You know, I use like Circle, for instance, Circle.so. It's a nice little app. Uh, it's a nice little Web2 community app, but, um, you know, you pay like 40 bucks a month for that whether it's Riverside, like this app that we're using right now to record, right? It's a SaaS app, it, uh, I pay them, you know, 20 bucks a month or something like that for all these bells and whistles to do my, uh, basically what is a video call, right? A video call that gets recorded. Uh, and this SaaS app does all that work for me and, and gives me um, this tool that I can use. And so the, the end result for anyone who's trying to do anything interesting or non-trivial on the internet, but I'm not a software developer, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be an engineer. I'm just trying to do cool shit with my friends and audience and people who follow me are interested in doing things with me. Um, you know, I pay something like, I pay something like, um, almost more than I pay more than a thousand dollars a month for SaaS apps. Um, and I have a cash flowing business, you know, I do courses and I do, I do courses and I do different types of things. Uh, you know, I have a growing audience, so it's, uh, you know, on net, I, I can, it's profitable, everything that I'm doing, but that's like a massive monthly bill for someone who's 
doesn't have a multi-million dollar startup, right? And so I have this unique position where I kind of feel this massive gap in the market because I know there's lots of other people like me who would like to be doing all kinds of creative, non-trivial software-based things with my friends and audience on the computer. Um, but, you know, it's it's just all of these things I would like to do. Um, there are there are hard economic limits on how much I can do because it's so expensive to have all of these different services. And frankly, a lot of them are redundant and overlap, right? So it's like, um, I one one that I use, for instance, is Zap, Zapier. And Zapier is just a, SAP, a SaaS app that lets me connect the other SaaS apps that I'm paying for. That's all That's all it really does. And it's powerful and it's cool and it, and it is worth it. Um, but basically at the end of the day, all I'm doing is pushing data around on my computer and there's no reason why it should cost so much. And that's what people don't realize. Let me just dig into a couple things there. I think that's a really good summary, especially from the creator's angle. I think one thing that jumps out immediately there is that it's immediately obvious, I think, to anyone who's an engineer why these things cost a lot because you have to like pay a team and they have to get funded in order to maintain that as like, you know, this web service probably running on AWS or similar indefinitely. It's also very obvious to anyone in your audience who's an engineer that uh, which you have a lot of, none of them can come in and help your workflow. You like you can tell them about this problem and none of them can do anything about it because all of those apps are siloed in those companies' things, right? In their cloud, in their cloud deployments. Whereas in the Urbit future, when it's there, if one person gets the itch or even if you want to pay them a small amount or what you have, they can go in and like, and like materially improve your workflow. And so you start to get to like, you know, these sort of exponential effects where you're creating, you're building an audience, they're able to do stuff for you. That in turn unlocks, you know, new possibilities. But right now, I just don't think people understand how stuck software is because of this. And I think the best way to say it is that you have lots of very smart people who listen to you. Many of them have free time that they use for software projects and they cannot do anything to fix this problem. Even with something like Zapier, once it's like a full startup and they do that, that doesn't present a programmable interface for them to you know, help you with all the other services. You're sort of solving the problem that one time, but not, but not in a general way. And I think this is really the promise of Urbit. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so that's, that, that's only one angle of kind of value unlock that is, and you're already starting to see it, right? So like there's the studio app on Urbit, which is kind of like a, a little early, like Substack competitor, right? So like I use Ghost for my newsletter, for my blog and newsletter, I use Ghost. And uh, I pay like 100, 100 bucks a month for Ghost because it's, it's kind of uh, based on how many subscribers you have. So, so as you grow, you pay more. And Ghost is a great uh, piece of software. I really like the ghost, um, mm -hmm. software, but a hundred bucks a month, a hundred bucks a month is not trivial. Right. And so it's like at the point where studio app becomes, you know, kind of uh first in class, as good as a Substack or a, or a, or a ghost blog. I mean, that's, that's a non-trivial reason for people to start moving over. And it's, it's inevitable that this is going like the, the value that you get for free by using mm -hmm. Urbit versions of apps is going to, at a certain point, be undeniable and irresistible. And this is a great example of when I'm talking, when I'm thinking about Urbit bottlenecks, we actually have two just in that example that once they're lifted can potentially make a lot of stuff go fast or get in the, you know, tens of thousands of users very rapidly just from one thing, which is uh, like one, you would like to serve stuff from your Urbit ship. And so the main thing there is just, uh, can it handle HTTP requests fast enough? There's approaches to do that. I think Studio 
has done like is using some stuff that makes that better. Although I haven't tried it enough to be confident posting links to it on my Twitter. Maybe I'll try like maybe I'll try soon and it'll be able to handle it. Uh, once that's removed from a performance perspective, it becomes very attractive. The other thing is that use case you just like described that doesn't require privacy. You can absolutely like you would be totally fine subscribing for five dollars a month to run in Urbit and do all this other stuff, and you also get like blogging software for free. That's like you know just just as good. And I think that's where Urbit's going to be able to get a lot of adoption because. Urbit doesn't even need one killer app. It can have dozens of killer apps and anything that gets people to either pay $5 a month or be, you know, be fine, have a company be fine having that as a loss leader for that amount a month. Uh, you have the person on Urbit because the flow is, Urbit's a virtual machine. You can just sort of deploy it there. It lives in its own little world and it's actually really easy to manage and deploy. It actually, just like Urbit's, one of its real competitors is like, you know, this whole cloud computing SaaS backend. And it's really cool for me to find these use cases where it's just obvious for someone to do it. It doesn't require sort of super privacy or security. And it's, you know, just like a no brainer and an easy flow. Hell yeah. So let's talk a little bit about crypto now. Um, so you, you built the Bitcoin wallet into Urbit. So I'm guessing that you used to be perhaps most interested in, in Bitcoin. Otherwise, if you were more interested in something else, presumably you would have built that wallet into Urbit. Mm. Uh, but now I, I believe you're you're kind of something of an ETH maxi, um, but I'm not sure about any of these, these things. So you should <laughs> you should describe it in your own words. I know that currently you're working on Ookbar, which you referred to before, which is basically an ETH layer two built on Urbit. And, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute, but let's just start with with Bitcoin and then talk about ETH. Um, how, do you, how do you think about Bitcoin? How do you think about Bitcoin? At the time when I did the Bitcoin wallet, I was definitely like a Bitcoin maxi. Like there's no reason to, you know, bandy terms. Like that was just like what it, you know, what it was. Um, I was doing it because it was a cool project that Wolref Podlex asked me to do. And I probably became more of a Bitcoin maxi while I was doing it. And then I think actually the project itself probably made me less of one for, like, for a variety of reasons or in the aftermath. But my perspective on it in terms of Bitcoin was I was very, very convinced by, let's call it the monetary properties thesis, which there's sort of, you know, the meme thesis of value, which is like Dogecoin, Bitcoin, like, you know, gold, like who knows, like it's all just out there and whatever people like all decide to buy, uh, that's it. And I was much more convinced by, you know, the monetary properties thesis. I think probably the best example of it is the Bitcoin standard, although I think that's subsequently, you know, had some had some flaws, but I think that did affect people's thinking a lot circa 2018, 19, 20. And the basic idea is just that, uh, you know, there's this whole matrix of properties like, you know, supply, like supply cap, ease of verification, how well you can send it, stuff like that, that determine whether people end up wanting something as money. And you can find any number of articles about this in regards to Bitcoin. Um, you know, the Bitcoin standard, uh, the book is fine. Uh, Vijay Boyaparty's article is a good example. There's plenty of, plenty of stuff on these lines and I could give links. I like that thesis because it seemed to track very well with how, you know, things like gold had worked throughout history. And there did seem to be something about them that was like getting people to converge to them. That was much more than just like memes. Um, and then in Bitcoin, it feels like you've kind of stripped out everything extraneous that you have to have because of, the, uh, you know, just gold is the best item that people could find, but the, you know, you could conceivably do this better. And so that was fairly convincing to me. And I also was like fairly convinced by the idea just because I have like, you know, 
invested money or had money to like sort of preserve that the store of value thing is real. It's a thing that people need and people will bid up things like real estate and stocks in order to do that. So it's, it's very convincing to see how like if you have something that's a better store of value than these other things, it will, you know, take that from them. And I think you had, uh, you know, you had Curtis on your show recently and he was talking about, you know, the reasons that, you know, one thing becomes a bubble that goes bigger. I think that's basically right. I would just get a little more, even more into the fundamentals. Although to be fair to him, I think, you know, he does too. That, so that was my, that was my. Do you still believe in that store, store of value? Yeah. Do you still I believe in the store of value function for Bitcoin in the, in the long term? Short story, no. Long story, no, with, you know, more words. So I think that the idea that Bitcoin was competing with things on the basis of monetary properties was correct. And I think that in the wake of, you know, money printing post-COVID, money was flowing into it because people were kind of spontaneously converging on, we think this will be the thing that like does well when there's lots of money being printed uh, and that it will be like a better money. I think that ETH has subsequently uh, outcompeted it and is like very, very likely to maintain that. And I think that the reason is Bitcoin is, has a lot of good monetary properties. Uh, two, thing, two properties that Bitcoiners don't talk about much, but that are really important are settlement and number go up. So settlement is basically, can you settle this asset in kind of arbitrary programmatic ways? And without going too much into history, in my view, this is what, you know, one of the reasons that gold didn't work and was outcompeted by fiat heavily and fiat, you know, denominated assets like real estate, stocks, et cetera. Like gold sucks for settlement. You can't make contracts about it and transfer it. And by the late, late 1800s, early 1900s, there were just tons of like, you know, banks and national organizations set up around clearing gold payments using, like, you know, just ledgers, which then became fiat. And the problem with Bitcoin is that because the base layer uh, doesn't have the needed primitives, you cannot trustlessly settle stuff from side chains. So with ETH rollups, you can make constructions where you can put, you know, $10 million into it and be very confident that, you know, if you've audited the rollup properly and stuff is designed right, that no matter what, you will always be able to get that $10 million out. Bitcoin, if you have a side chain or you put in a bridge or something, you absolutely don't have that guarantee. So you had early Bitcoin side chains, which is, you know, stuff like Liquid by Blockstream, where you just throw the money into a Bitcoin address. And then if Liquid's multi-sig lets you have it later, then you get it. Uh, you also have like WBTC, where you're at the whim of whatever. I forget what the company is. But there's a consortium that runs it. They decide whether you get your Bitcoin back like on chain. And so I think that settlement is a really important property. And we're seeing that, you know, in DeFi, like there's, there's a lot of things that people so want what's wrong to with... do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, keep going. What's wrong with lightning? Uh, it's not rich enough. Lightning is actually pretty cool in that it's like pushing the limits of what you can do with current Bitcoin primitives. It's about the maximum that you can kind of push, uh, what Bitcoin lets you verify on chain and get non like non-custodial stuff. The problem with it is just that that isn't very rich and it's not a great user experience. And to make the user experience good, you need one of two things. You either need lots of very centralized lightning nodes, which is what's happened in practice, which kind of start, you know, starts to defeat a lot of the purpose, 
uh, or you need Urbit because you actually could build a pretty good lightning payments setup on Urbit because it lets you do all of the peer-to-peer -peer networking that you do. Discovery makes would make opening channels and balancing them easier, lets your computer automate a lot of stuff. The problem is that like Bitcoiners are pretty extreme Luddites and even, I'm not going to name any names, but there's very prominent Bitcoin influencers who I've like, you know, who are very smart, uh, who I, I've like literally just walked through how ZK technology works and they just didn't know. These are very prominent people who uh, have written extremely well-known theses and are not have high IQs. They're just not interested in it. And so Bitcoin people don't have the interest in Lightning necessary to like, sorry, in Urbit necessary to put Lightning on there. And even then, all you would have is payments. It would be nice, but there's you, you can do much better stuff with ZK constructions, in my opinion. Okay, so it sounds like this goes into your views on ETH in that it sounds like where this is going is that you think ETH has uh, a few superior properties. Talk about ETH. How do you think about ETH? It sounds like you subscribe to the idea that ETH will eventually uh, flip in, so to speak, uh, BTC. L talk about ETH and how you think about it. Yeah, I would be surprised if it doesn't flip in it within two years. Even that feels long, but we'll see. Um, I think of it as very, very similar to Bitcoin and very much playing the same game. And I think this is something that Bitcoiners don't realize in general is that ETH people take the same things very seriously that they do. They actually iterate the base layer very slowly and very conservatively. Uh, they're not just like, you know, throwing the merge out or something like that. Uh, they're not willing to add a lot of, you know, extraneous primitives. Um, I think, and in this, and they're also, you know, taking steps to, I, I think the biggest difference from the Bitcoiners point of view is that it doesn't have a set like supply schedule, right? ETH is subject to what ETH wants. I think the thing they miss there is then they analogize that to government controlled fiat currency, where history tells us that like, whenever you give a government control of a currency, it always debases it. And so they, I think what they incorrectly think is, okay, if you have a mutable money supply, it will be debased, right? I think that falls apart very, very heavily both, well, we have to look at ETH and say that the monetary sort of issuance schedule of ETH has only gone one direction since it's come out. It's just like Bitcoiners will show that chart where, you know, Bitcoin goes on this smooth path down and like ETH goes like this, but it's only going down like the entire time. So if it's only going down, why is that? Uh, one answer is, of course, that, you know, it is like it won't go down forever and it'll just start going up at some point. But I think that there's very likely a fundamental reason that that's the case, which is that ETH, much like Bitcoin, is this sort of is this very pure form of money that doesn't have a nation state or company apparatus attached to it. And so the reason that governments always debase is that there's always an overwhelming and they, they always can pay for a military or pay for handouts to keep people happy, right? I don't use I don't use either term like pejoratively. I understand the value of like handouts and of militaries, but it's like definitely true that they have those appendages attached, and those appendages crave money. And so, if you have access to like to a money supply, and you have this thing that both craves money and will give you power for doing it, you're going to feed it, right? ETH doesn't have that, and I think that. The only, there was a time when they were doing EIP-1559, which is basically, just for your listeners who don't know, is the mechanism by which sort of, let's call them excess fees 
burn ETH rather than giving it to miners and then later uh, not to stakers. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about whether they should direct that to public goods funding. And if that had been done, in practice, this actually would have become this very sort of, you know, nation state like handout appendage that asks for money, has people competing over who gets those grants. There would be literally billions of dollars sloshing around to be had. And, be and I think ETH people, especially prominent ones, very quickly intuited that that was the case. That's not what you want. And the sort it reached a social consensus of let's not do this. And I think ETH is this shelling point for let's do everything possible to make ETH as valuable as possible. And that makes Bitcoiners very uncomfortable. It makes autistic people uncomfortable in general. I think a lot about cryptocurrencies and their security models make autistic people uncomfortable because you always fall back to a social consensus layer. And so because it makes them uncomfortable, they'll either fall back to, you know, just sticking their like fingers in their ears and pretending that, you know, their security system is doing all the work, which is, you know, what Bitcoiners mostly do with proof of work. Or they'll take the angle that, you know, Curtis did on your show where they immediately make the incorrect, in my opinion, jump where they're like, oh, that means, well, if it's already like, you know, there's social consensus, that means you should put like, you know, a CEO uh, in charge of it. And that's also not what you want because the CEO is also a form of appendage, right? What you really want is this very hard herd of cats to round up that only is connected by one principle, which is let's make this thing pretty stable and ossified and very valuable. And I think uh, the most successful cryptocurrencies are really good at doing that. And I think that ETH is, you know, on track to be, uh, you know, to be by far the best at being that kind of shelling point. Okay. Okay, fascinating. And how do you think about this question or this threat of of regulatory crackdowns? So there's lots we could possibly talk about here. You know, Curtis tends to mm -hmm. think that something like Bitcoin is basically going to be banned. That there that there could be these this kind of uh, massive blanket kind of whitelist and blacklist, and it would it would kind of uh, destroy the whole thing. But when he's, it comes to he's had as well, he's had this know, he's had this view for um, ten years, by the way. Like it's it's worth noting. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, it is interesting though that that he's still convicted in that. And but when we talk about ETH, you know, you're more bullish on ETH. It it's not it's not clear quite yet that that ETH is not a security. This is something people are are very concerned about. Some people uh, make the argument that actually ETH ETH does look a lot like a security. Go ahead. I mean, I think ETH is at the. It's getting very close, in my opinion, to being too big to fail adjusted for the strength of conviction of a lot of participants. Um, I'm trying to think of even where to start the answer. I think empirically, we probably have to start with the fact that despite the predictions of people like Curtis for the last 10 years or more, that the government will ban it. And that's like, you, you can dress it up however you want, but essentially... They have this very strong view of what government is and what it can do. Uh, based on that view, they predict that it will be banned and they present plausible mechanisms for that. We have to note at this point that Bitcoin went over a trillion dollars without any of those mechanisms coming remotely close to being activated, like in any way. And so that's interesting because once you pass a certain threshold of value, you start to be a constituency. And I think we're already at the level now in, I, I treat the US as very important, probably before 
I'm, you know, on my own podcast, I think the episode will come out soon. We talked about how our views changed after the Russo-Ukraine war, but I think I probably put the U.S. in a more dominant position after that. So I do think that U.S. policy matters a lot. And I think, and even though there will be some bumps, I think we're already starting to see in a bipartisan way, U.S. legislators get co-opted by crypto. We're starting to see very strong lobby movements. We're seeing, look... Ripple is like one of the biggest scam, like obvious securities ever. And they're still successfully tying still down kicking. tons yeah. of, <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're still kicking. Yeah. They're tying down tons of SEC resources. They can afford all the same lawyers. Uh, there's just like, I, I think the problem is that in my view, most of the, most of the scenarios in which the government does an effective, complete ban of something like crypto require a level of coordination on the part of the government that would make it an, a completely different government. Like a government that could do that would have been like, you know, industrially reshoring, competing perfectly with China. Like, in fact, what we have is a lot of different interests, all of them, which is like we have, you know, a Supreme Court that's, you know, completely at odds with large parts of the electorate and with like, you know, the the administration. We have like legislatures and legislators in one part. We have, you know, bureaucracies. It's, in my opinion, it's very hard. Now, I think part of the question you were asking, though, was, is ETH likely to be uh, sort of effectively called a security? And I think my initial answer to that would be, if if what we just saw, if what we've seen with Ripple is any indicator, can you imagine the SEC fighting that same legal battle against ETH? I mean, it would be the biggest, it would be the biggest joke in history, regardless of how Ripple came down and the SEC would spend years and get completely annihilated. It's not an attractive fight for them. Well, so, right. Well, there's a a few things here that could be separated though. So like, it would be one thing if, you know, particular regulators in the United States decided to mount some kind of prosecution against some particular actors. That, that's that's one thing that, you know, we know the government can do and tries to do sometimes, you know, that that's one thing. But another thing, it would just be some kind of more blunt, naive governmental regulation or legislation that would effectively send the price to zero on something, whether that's ETH or BTC or what have you. And so I tend to completely agree with you, the idea that the US government would enact some kind of planned strategic uh, crackdown on crypto is far-fetched for me, given just what we know about the nature of, of American governmental gridlock and incapacity. But doing something kind of just totally idiotic and and blunt and naive that would legally send things to zero that sounds you know to me perhaps um something more you know more worth considering but it sounds like you're not so worried about in my opinion they're actually fairly equivalent because it's fairly hard for a a part of the u.s bureaucracy to issue a reg that won't get tied up for a long time particularly if it affects uh, large amounts of economic value. Uh, courts are very likely to not look on that favorably, especially when we're not just talking about like sort of academic arguments on the part of courts. We're talking about like the policy idea of locking up tons of people's money. We're talking about like lots of legislators being aligned, which does matter. Whenever, whenever there's a feeling in the system that like th- there's other sides to this, that actually makes a huge difference. I think, I mean, one thing I would say in response to this is that I think crypto has a lot of the product market fit and strong appeal of things that have survived despite 
extremely strong federal level crackdowns. Like one thing people always forget when they're talking about crypto is like marijuana has been banned for how long in the U.S. until, you know, until actually like recently when it's, you know, been legalized in a lot of places. But and that resulted in over time, it would be randomly dangerous to own it or buy it. Uh, it wouldn't be a it would be very lucrative maybe to do it like to do large parts of the business, um, but still dangerous. And so you would have this, you had this weird sort of anarchic system where like it's illegal. A lot of people can still do it because it's very hard to coordinate all the pieces to actually make the ban work well. And some people randomly have their lives completely fucked because like, you know, on occasion, but everyone, you know, everyone keeps using it. That's without getting too much into the weeds. That's roughly how I would imagine it would go if they did some extremely ham handed regulation. I would actually expect it to get challenged successfully in a court process uh, faster. So I think it would more look like everyone kind of waiting this out and sort of transacting in the dark and people sort of getting screwed sometimes. And then after some period of time, having it, uh, having it liberalized. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I think we're also at the point where in America, there, 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 there's a large enough crypto nouveau riche that would actually just flee the country if they needed to right i mean i i think you probably know this... people like this i know a lot of people like this that are like basically already kind of i i can't count the number of people who basically have some kind of informal escape plan if need be right um and and so you'd have to really think about the political calculus there right because sure maybe that number of people is not like a very high percentage of the 350 million or so people in the United States, but it's probably um, a highly productive, highly valuable cluster. And it would be, if those people actually left the country, it would be enough that, that, that there would be ramifications economically and politically. Yeah. Let me, let me play out just in very broad contours, my scenario, because people have been talking about all this stuff in the wake of tornado and I really don't want to overfit it, but it's very encouraging to me to hear that, you know, that many people who would do it because sometimes I, just because I'm relatively like atypical, I try not to like project what I would do onto other people. And so I just assume all Americans will be total normies and not do anything. Um, what I would expect to happen in the, let's, let's say the, the blunt ban scenario. I don't know. Let's say OFAC, like, um, you know, treasury comes out and says that like you, you can't touch anything that's been in tornado in the last 10 hops or what you know whatever you have and like has some way of doing that and exchanges get really you know nervous um what happens then uh based on what you're saying is large percentages of crypto wealth leave america right they go to other countries where they can do it fine and where they know they won't get detected for using it and where they have off ramps like for example you know, when I lived in Ukraine, I had really, you know, there were, there were really good off ramps. Like my wife had crypto and it was very easy for us to, you know, find people who would, you know, literally she had it and we like bought an apartment using that. Like, to, like the guy, a guy came with a suitcase of like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and, you know, put it on a table in like a notary's room and the notary notarized all the documents. Like the guy was with like the guns left and the seller of the apartment you know, just put everything, you know, all the dollar bills into their like jackets and like walked out. Um, oh, really? So yeah, yeah it, was, it was just cool. It was very, it was a very base society. Uh, it will be again one day. Um, a, now my point is there are multiple places in the world where these people can go and effectively cash out or ha like have off ramps. They can even report it to the U.S. as the, like, you know, as taxable income and so, you know, in some form if they're, you know, paranoid about that. Um, they'll do that. People will stay in America who are crypto rich and don't, you know, break the regs and they will lobby very hard 
for that. The stuff will work its way through the political process and there will be a lot of incentive to, you know, not show undue deference to the agency. Uh, as we're seeing in the case of Ripple, there just isn't any undue deference to like, oh, this is the SEC. So one thing you have to remember about American bureaucratic agencies, one of the main tools they have if they sue you is that they can often freeze assets and stuff like that. But in the case of Ripple, all their money is in magic internet money, which their lawyers, I presume, are very happy to take in large amounts. And so they have this unlimited budget. Uh, and it means that when they go in front of the judge, the judge is looking at, you know, one set of lawyers who all went to like, you know, Harvard, Stanford, Yale Law School, and another set of lawyers who all went to Harvard, Stanford, Yale Law School, and all worked at the same, like, you know, New York law firms, right? And they're just, you know, talking to, you know, probably some of the ones representing Ripple, like, were in the SEC. I don't know. I have to look at, like, the exact case. And it's this very procedural thing that plays out there. And if you have the money to spend, you can go through that process. And so I would expect it to, yeah, look like a lot of people just sort of chill, lie low. It's an economic hit and it works through. But I will say that one thing the U.S. has historically been good at is not killing the geese that lay the golden eggs. It just has this instinct for it. A lot of other countries don't. European countries kill those geese because Europeans are morons. And the U.S. has this, has this self-preservation instinct. Yeah, that's so true. It's a great point. The American political tradition is always more to hitch the government's wagon to the golden goose, right? It's like instead of trying to crack it down, like uh, some people have, have called the American government like, you know, a, a set of flimsy institutions basically tacked on to the stock market. And, you know, I think there's there's some truth to that. And I think if you think about that with the un, un, unrolling of the crypto economy, I agree with you that I personally, my wager is much more on the U.S. government basically just hitching its wagon to this new engine, because that that is more the American political tradition. Yeah, it, this is the next wave of software money, golden goose, and it can suck in a ton of money from the rest of the world in crazy amounts. And one thing I was musing on on Twitter was recently I was talking about the importance of off ramps. And one of the most important things for crypto, for a jurisdiction being good to live in, is will they let you cash out your crypto? A lot of European jurisdictions are terrible about this. And so they're kind of, you know, that's why they're poor. Like one thing that's very, that's, you know, impresses itself on you when you go through Europe is that, you know, Euro pours is a real thing. Like they, they don't have that instinct and it costs them. Um, in America, there's just a very good business model, which is, that's obvious here, which is you generate a ton of money with this, you know, huge new economy. Suck, importantly, suck in the talent and money from the rest of the world by doing that. Uh, give these people working in it off ramps and charge them 25 to 40% for using those off ramps. And like, they'll do it because it's a good off ramp in a place where it's like, where it's safe enough. And that's not to say, this is not to say this is the way it will play out, but I think that it's extremely, it, you, you're, you're going up against a lot of history to suggest that, you know, this will be the time that the U.S. Uh, kills the golden goose. There seems to be some sort of institutional memory in terms of how not to do that. Right, right. I agree with that. I, I, I also believe in that. And I'm, I'm kind of putting my putting my bets on that as well. So you recently launched a podcast with uh, Bishel Ritson and so, some of the guys in your. And it was, uh, it was with me, Bichel, me, Bichel Ritson and Nilrun Mardux. Just right, right. I think you started shots. calling it Web Zero. 
now I think you're calling it the network age. So I think you're kind of playing with the branding, but you've done a few episodes and right. it's really quite fun to listen to. I, I would recommend it to my audience. I, I listened to all the first few episodes and is, you know, a lot of really intelligent stuff and, and, and fun, good vibes as well. So one of the interesting things I overheard you say in one of those podcasts was that uh, when you were in U Ukraine, so for people listening who don't know, there was like a whole urban hacker crew in Ukraine right when things kicked off. And if you alluded to earlier in the podcast, Tim, that you lived in Ukraine for actually quite some time, but there were a bunch of urban hackers living in, in, in Ukraine when the war kicked off. And something that you said that I thought was interesting was that when shit hit the fan, people didn't want US dollars, uh, people or stable coins, people wanted ETH and and bitcoin um maybe you could talk a little bit about what you learned well no um, i should be 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 very precise they they really wanted stable coins bitcoin and eth were fine too but they were like any they wanted it in crypto form specifically okay yeah great great so that's fine good clarification but just speak a little bit more to what you saw in this kind of shit hits the fan crisis scenario when it comes to demand for types of money and just in practice what you learned and was there anything surprising or, or uh, uh, you know, lessons learned that were influential or important or surprising uh, watching like how people think about different types of money and crypto in a crisis scenario? The first big lesson that I learned is that in a lot of very meaningful ways, digital possession, like digital assets are more permanent and more yours than physical ones in very real ways. I think in, let's say the US, that's somewhat hypothetical, like, you know, don't pay your property tax and your house gets taken away, or maybe, you know, your, your stocks get frozen or something. But here it was very much like, you know, my mother-in-law, I had like, you know, gotten her to dump money into like ETH instead of a house or instead of an apartment to rent out when she you know, sold, um, sold a house. And so now she like had her savings. I would have like, you know, friends or people or acquaintances who, you know, literally had, had you know, in many cases accumulated a lot of money, um, either sort of middle class or in some cases like, you know, very wealthy people whose money was all like encoded in businesses there, in apartments, you know, in whatever. And, or even like, you know, for their liquid cash, it was in a, like a like safe box somewhere. And they would like call us and just be like, you know, we don't have money. Can you like send us some money so we can get like a hotel for our kids tonight across like the border uh, so we can figure things out? Uh, and even, or even like, um, you know, people who were, I think, multimillionaires who had worked, my wife's a stylist, so she works with like, you know, client, like a lot of clients like that. And they would be like, oh, I want to, you know, get, you know, do styling again, but I, you know, don't have money right now. Um, and so, you know, in all of these cases, it was just, and we, we're, whereas we like were very, um, we were like just renting our house. You know, people would ask us why we're throwing money away on renting. And the most we had in physical property was like, you know, a, a small apartment and a car uh, that we were like renting out. And it just felt like really good to be like, okay, I have all my stuff. It's here. No one can take it from me. I can cross borders, do whatever. And the reason that uh, crypto was spiking in prices is that, you know, on the morning of 224, everyone had this same realization like, oh shit, I wish I had, you know, Bitcoin or USDT right now because then I could go across the border. And so I had like, um, my wife had just done a transaction a few days before where she had sent a broker some money to get like, you know, some dollars just to like spend on a day-to-day -day basis. If you're if you're in Ukraine, they have money changing places every hundred meters at very, very tight rates. And so people will hold money in dollars and then the local currency, you know, probably hadn't, 
it had had bad inflation episodes. So people didn't want to hold it. Um, and so, and he, and I was like, oh, can we get it back? Or can you transfer it back to like stable coin and send it to me? And he was like, yeah, it's, you know, that's not happening today. Like you can't do it. He, he did eventually, you know, get me the money. It wasn't, he was very honest, but yeah, like people wanted it because that was, that was the good form of money at that time. And that pretty much, uh, stayed true. And you found it was, it was actually quite easy to use your crypto for things. You told that story about getting an apartment with crypto. And yeah. Like, you found that, like when shit hit the fan, when shit hit the fan, like crypto was what you wanted. Crypto worked. Crypto was like, it came, swung into action. Definitely. I mean, if you have, if you have any kind of networks now anywhere in the world, uh, it, it's not very hard for you to find people who will give you money for your crypto or I can still, you know, because I have my accounts on Coinbase, I can cash it out. There's places, you know, in Europe where you can off ramp. Uh, there's also situations where, you know, I, you know, so, people, right. you can do exchanges. Yeah. I think, I think maybe what I heard you say in the podcast was that, stable coins weren't quite as useful or effective. Like they're, they're, they were harder to trade or harder to get or harder to use. Whereas Bitcoin and ETH um, worked better in a certain way. Do you recall? Mm, uh, I don't think I would have said that because it wasn't accurate. It was very much a, okay, I might be misremembering uh, a crypto thing. Yeah. I think, I think that's actually fine or not a big deal. I think that this actually is part of the bear case for ETH and bull, I'm oh, sorry, bear case for Bitcoin and bull case for ETH is that when I'm talking about digital property being better, the one thing a lot of people will be screaming in their heads when I talk about things like real estate is that there is no yield on, you know, crypto assets. And I think ETH having actual yield post merge based on, you know, the internal ETH economy feeding back into that and making it you know, very high, relatively very high year, uh, real yield in the asset. Uh, I think that's going to drive a lot of people into it. And for more people just have that be the thing that they hold uh, rather than, you know, a lot of people in like, you know, Eastern Europe and stuff will put, or in Asia, will put money into apartments uh, to get the cash flow. America's more about the stock market for a variety of reasons, probably because it's a more stable stock market. But I think it will move things more and more in that direction. Cool. So I think this kind of brings us up to what you're working on now, which we should talk about a little bit, which is Ookbar. So you're the founder of Ookbar, which is, as I referred to before, it's basically an ETH layer two, but built on top of Urbit. So I think for a lot of people listening, it's not even going to be at all clear what what that means, uh, how to think <laughs> about that, how to how, how to even how to even how to even parse that. So uh, we'll probably have you back on the podcast in a few months when uh, Ukbar is in a more advanced stage of development. It's very, very early days for Ukbar, but you did recently uh, raise a bunch of money. Uh, you have a whole team working on this. And from what I hear, it's going well. In fact, people should know that uh, from what I heard, you know, the, 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 the rumors around the grapevine, it seems like uh, Ukbar has really absorbed a lot of the top engineering talent in Urban. And by the way, full disclosure, I am a very, very, very small investor in Ukbar. And also I, I do some paid work for Ukbar. Pumping, so, uh, pumping your bags on the pod. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But honestly, uh, and transparently, <laughs> uh, no, but so, uh, from, from what I've gathered, it seems like a lot of the most experienced Urban developers, uh, the, the top devs either kind of quit working with Tlon or stopped what they were doing in some other context and have really been heads down on Ukbar for quite some time. I'm thinking of, uh, you know, well, I, I, won't, me, I won't mention names, but there's a lot of top, top names. talents. Let, so let me, let me, Ukbar, let me actually, well, let me, I want to actually be more bullish than that with regards to the talent on it, because 
It's actually not the case that a lot of people quit Talon and work with us. We have one guy who did a lot of work with us who uh, had already quit Talon and was doing his own thing. A lot of your listeners probably know who I'm talking about if they know anything about that. And then we had one other guy who we took from Talon on a sabbatical and we'll see whether he ends up staying. Other than that, everyone has been a community recruit. And a lot of them were people who came through our apprentices and grants program. When I was running it, other people are just people who were on the network and we knew and we knew about and who came in there. Some uh, We have a couple people who had been orbiting Urbit or very involved, but were just uh, ETH devs uh, who have also come on and have gotten really into Hoon and left their you know file ways behind. And so, yeah, it's... um. It's actually been really bullish in the sense that there's a big enough community in Urbit for of de- of developers for us to be able to you know choose the very best ones and th- there's other people we haven't been able to hire yet just because of bandwidth constraints where I, I think they would be really good. So Urbit actually has a pretty strong so right so there. I was just I just wanted to sketch for the audience that Ukbar is something that's been in the works for some time now and it's really one of the most exciting projects and just in the sense that the some some of the very best urbit engineers in the world with the most experience on fair, urbit fair. have have uh, have started working on this project and and so i'm just giving people that as background now for for people who are hearing about this for totally. the first time, just give us if you give us the investor pitch give us give us the elevator pitch that you give to um you know investors or people interested in this project sure in Urbit's fully realized form, writing apps on Urbit will be very easy and scalable in all the ways we've talked about where it's better than SaaS. The only thing missing from it is crypto access. So for any part of your app that needs to access global state and access the entire world of like assets that are already on Ethereum and also create their own assets, that's hard to do right now. If Ukbar did not exist, probably in two or three years, someone would create Ukbar because it's like a thing that you like that you need. So the idea of it is Ukbar makes writing to and reading from global consensus state as easy as, you know, writing a message over the network or like like setting a value in your database. On the technical level of what Ukbar is, is it's a ZK rollup on Ethereum, which means that it processes, if you want to like get Ethereum funds on it, you can do so safely or once the product's out, you'll be able to. And you process transactions, uh, you know, on what's essentially, you know, roll up a side chain. And then a ZK proof is submitted to Ethereum that proves that those transactions were all run correctly. And also the data is submitted to Ethereum uh, to let you know uh, what the actual state is now for data availability purposes. I don't want to go too far down that, but what it means at the end is that your funds that you like your funds and everything that happens on Ukbar is just as safe as if you were trading on ETH mainnet, if our bridge is written properly uh, for that. And that's the promise of every ZK of every rollup, basically. Perfect. That's great. And so I think the current roadmap uh, is has, has a promise of um, a test net coming sometime in the next few months. And so people will be able to sooner, sooner in, in some circles. Sooner. Okay, great. Awesome. So Testnet soon people is, will be playing we'll, with this. Yes. We'll probably have for people who know us like friends, probably in the next week or two, they'll be playing with it. And then by assembly for sure, the actual experience will be there, which will be very sort of one click. And now you're in a kind of online playground development environment where you're developing and deploying UFAR contracts to the testnet. 
it's awesome. It's, it's Amazing. Happening. Yeah. So people, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely be talking about this and kind of quote unquote reporting on this. If, 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 if you want to call it that. So definitely, uh, if you want to kind of stay tuned, we'll, we'll be talking about that in the months around assembly. So let's though, let's sketch for people a portrait of what this is going to look like and feel like. So, and, and I'll give you kind of my mental model and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I have a fuzzy picture or, or an incorrect picture, but from what I'm basically imagining from, from the user facing experience, it's more like, it's kind of like right now you can kind of, uh, if you, you can run a little DAO on discord, let's say, or a big DAO on discord, you, and you can use all these different kind of duct tape tools together, right? Maybe you have a discord server, maybe you have an ERC 20 token on Ethereum. That's kind of your community, uh, token. And maybe you use like the collab land bot that will do token gating in your discord server. So it kind of makes, uh, people coming into your discord server connect to a wallet, it measures the wallet for the amount of tokens that you have for that custom ERC 20 token. And if you have enough, you get into the the secret, you know, membership uh, layers of the discord server. And let's say, you know, you make some governance decisions on a tool like snapshot or something like this, this is kind of the current, uh, really quite clumsy and, and inefficient DAO stack, if you will. So what I'm imagining when when Urbit fully ships and is fully integrated into I'm sorry, when uh, Ukbar fully ships and is fully integrated into Urbit, I'm imagining Basically, I log on to my Urbit group, uh, which looks and feels a little bit like Discord. But now, all of a sudden, with Ukbar's you know superpowers, I can you know if someone creates a post in my Urbit group that is really good, maybe I can just click a button and pay them some amount of of the community token or something like that instantly and and without any friction you can, all within the app. That kind of thing, yeah. That kind of thing you can like you know. Probably, probably things like you know you can uh, like upgrade them to new DAO privileges and have those recorded on chain, or if that requires you know a vote from people in the DAO, uh, have it automatically pop up for anyone who does it. And anything we're talking about here, uh, remember how earlier we were talking about that case of you know your friend wants you to write an app that integrates his Twitter with voting with crypto. Yeah. Now you can actually do that. Like if anyone in your group has an idea of something they want to do on the back end, they can write that and ship it. Right. And okay. so, but, but so my, my example though, just to start things off, like of, of trivially paying someone in one click through an urban group, am I on the right track? Is that correct? Yeah, ab absolutely. And then it just goes, you know, way farther because it, oh, people always want to do stuff related to membership, voting privileges, issuing tokens, associating them with things. And, there's just this, you know, explosion of stuff that people want to do. And yeah, they'll be able to do that sure. in a way that works. Right. So I'm just trying to kind of go step by step or piece by piece and, and kind of paint this picture. So, right. So, um, and, and technically the way this will work, I believe is let's say you currently have a DAO that is based on a ERC 20 token as, as the community token, that's going to be bridged over to some kind of Urbit version, right? Kind of like currently how you bridge to Optimism or you bridge your ETH to Ar Arbitrum or whatever. In, in, fa um, in fact, and, and in fact, exact, in fact, exactly how you would bridge to them. Yeah, exactly how you would bridge okay. to them. Right. So it'll it'll be a similar experience to people who who have already you know done that process, which is quite trivial and, and easy. Uh, but now what happens is you bridge your custom ERC-20 token or just your ETH, you bridge that into some Urbit version, um, which is exactly the same, but just now it lives on Urbit and you can move it around. And so and so basically because of the zero knowledge advantages of, of the rollups, I'm going to be able to send money 
um, I'm going to be able to send our custom ERC20 token. In my case, like we have a token, it's uh, the, the the cash tag is LIFE, uh, money sign L-I-F-E, as an ERC20 token. Right now, I think only about like 300 people hold it, but I've been slowly kind of giving that out to people. So that's an ERC20 token. So when Ookbar becomes available, my Urbit group will have, I'll be able to bridge that token over to the, the Ookbar version. And then on my Urbit group, I'll be able to send people uh, whatever amount of, of the Urbit version of the life token. And that will be cheap uh, because of the, the zero knowledge rollups, right? So it's only going to yeah. settle to the Ethereum mainnet later, later, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll, and so it does, it, it's okay. cheap because it only settles to it later. And because it only, you know, without going into too much detail, it only needs to record the data about what happened. It doesn't need to like pay the whole Ethereum network to run that computation. This is, you know, the advantage of rollups from a, like from a cost perspective. And then from a programmer's perspective, it'll be just, you know, the same as whatever, you know, who they're using to write their app and they'll have a very nice development environment for doing this. Right. Okay. And then from there, it's kind of off to the races. You can imagine any type of um, increasingly sophisticated and, and impressive, uh, you know, like computation, basically anything you can do with your computer uh, and other people, you're going to be able to mix in liquidity basically uh to you know with the sky's the limit basically or are there limits that we should think about or are there are there caveats that are important um um i think there's additional use cases and then caveats so just one someone in your in your comments who you like asked questions for it asked about tell asking me to talk about the hub and spoke model and all he meant by that is that right now urbit groups are sort of owned by one ship by one urbit and they determine what the state of the group is and you can't really change that. And if they go offline, it's actually very hard to move it somewhere else. And with Ookbar, you can make group software where the state of the group is represented on chain and people could know by looking on chain who they're supposed to be listening to as the leader of the group or who's the current hub, or maybe you have you know multiple ones and you can uh, start to experiment with stuff like that. And so that gets into this thing where in crypto in general, there's actually a ton of appetite for developers to do new things with it. Uh, it's just that there's been this big limitation of uh, both cost and also the tools being kind of annoying. But we see like with projects like StarkNet, uh, people have, they, they do have a pretty big developer community that's interested in doing different stuff, even though the language is pretty hard and uh, not solidity. Um, in term, and so I think that we'll have that kind of experimentation happening where it will quickly go beyond just you know, where it is, the sky's the limit. People start doing really interesting things with global consensus. Now, what are the limits? The limits are the standard ones with global consensus, which is that even when it's cheap, it's expensive. Like you can use it. Uh, you don't want to me- like represent all of your DAO's messages on chain, right? And so the genius of Urbit is that, or especially Urbit with Ukbar, is that it lets you kind of granularly, granularly uh, tune those, uh, you know, those cost parameters and decide how much global consensus your app needs. Like, do you need, do you just need payments? Okay. Then, you know, just do payments in your group. Do you need a case where more complex governance or something is happening on chain? Do that. And Ukbar, because it's easy to call out, it makes the only barrier be cost. And so then, you know, I think people will quickly iterate to what are the cost effective versions of that and then offload the rest to Urbit. And this is actually something that's really well known in crypto right now is that one of the biggest blockers is this sort of what people will call middleware or tooling for handling off-chain state. 
Uh, and so most apps are sort of very, the most valuable apps are very fat. They throw most of the data, most of the data is can, the valuable stuff happens on chain, like with Uniswap. And then you have a little bit happening in your browser, right? And so Urbit makes it possible to have much richer off-chain state. And then Ukbar lets you granularly select how much on-chain access you need in order to hit your use case. Okay, fascinating. So with the caveat that, you know, things always take longer than people expect. There, you know, there's the one on planning fallacy, <laughs> yeah. which uh, the planning fallacy, the planning fallacy even occurs when people are aware of the planning fallacy, uh, which is a kind of mysterious uh, cognitive bias there. But so with that as a caveat, um, I'm personally interested in kind of mapping out my, my own future for the group, for my community, for, for, you know, all the other life listeners out there and, and people who have been, you know, active contributors to my community for years now. Um, at what point, if you had to put money on it, when will I have on Urbit a kind of Dowified Urbit group with, let's just say the, 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 the specific characteristics of it will be token gated, basic kind of token gating mechanism, and we'll be able for entities on the, in the group to send money back and forth natively on Urbit. Those two, those two, those two key conditions. When do you think I'll be, ha I'll have that up and running uh, if you had to put money on it? And you're talking about, it's like, to be clear, like real money, not like testnet play money, right? They want to, they want to get paid. Um, yeah, real money. Yeah, real money. Yeah. Um, so the nice thing about the planning fallacy is that because if you know about it, you still can't avoid it. You might as well just say, fuck it and just say numbers. So June, yeah, 2020, take your best June, guess, yeah. June, June, 2023, June next year. Okay. And testnet, testnet, me and my, me and my people in my group will be able to play around with this stuff on testnet in coming months. Uh, yeah. Early, like late September, early October. Awesome. Awesome. Super Particular, particularly for the people in well, your group who are developers and want to like start getting into that because that's very much our first target audience. And then enthusiasts will be able to interact with it in terms of these are things the developers are making, uh, or yelling at them to make things if they have more authority like you do. And, you know, then it goes from there. Yeah, absolutely. And I, actually, I mean, this is its own interesting point to share, which I, uh, people are still sleeping on, which is that in, in, a, in a fully developed urban ecosystem, it, the, it really changes the status and the power and the economic prospects of so-called creators or writers or basically any, anyone, anyone who builds an audience. On Urbit, the, the economics and the prospects for that type of person are going to be fundamentally different in a way that people are still really sleeping on. Because now what it means is like right now on the web too, like if you have an audience, yeah, that's great. You can monetize that in many ways. It's well known that having an audience and having respect and, you know, uh, a certain amount of legitimacy in the eyes of, of readers or viewers or whatever is economically valuable. That's well known and not controversial. But your ability, your ability to actually lever that up into creating uh, new forms of value is relatively very constrained in ways that people Let's... don't fully appreciate, again, because we, we've just naturalized all these limitations of Web2 and the SaaS model. With Urbit, this stuff's going to get super crazy because the way I'm thinking about it is if you have an audience on Urbit and you have an active, genuine community on Urbit, then you start, as a creator, you start interacting with and partnering with engineers and developers, you know, cause I have a lot of people in my audience who are creators who are not necessarily engineers, but are, you know, technically somewhat sophisticated and technically at least interested. And, um, yeah, I think this is like a massive, uh, vector of, of, of new form of, of new value accretion that people currently can't even really conceptualize because right now creators are relatively very constrained by, by the SAS model. But once 
creator, like basically creators offer to engineers and to developers something that engineers and developers don't have, which is culture, audience, people, users, right? And so it's like right now on web two, if you're an engineer, you can you can build a really cool software startup and you can totally fail because you can't get users, right? This is actually a very, very common problem or roadblock uh, for 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 really talented developers and engineers can't actually make an interesting, successful living because they can't get users, uh, even if they make a really cool, valuable product. Because this is a real kind of problem uh, for engineers and developers. So uh, on right now in Web2, it's, it's difficult for an engineer to kind of collaborate or partner with a creator or an influencer. You don't see, there's, you see some of that at the very, very high level of influencers and creators. You know, the very, very, very large uh, influencers, whatever, will sometimes partner with a startup and kind of be a co-founder of something. Uh, but that ha that's very, very rare. It's a very small slice of kind of the internet economy because the, the economics only really make sense for those like massively large creators. But with Urbit, again, things are very different. The economics are very different when you can create an app that just lives in the network and doesn't require a lot of maintenance. So it doesn't have to be uh, kind of VC backed um, with like a large team of engineers maintaining it. Not only do the economics change there for developers and what types of apps become economically viable, but what types of partnerships and, and kind of uh, teams become imaginable and economically viable starts to shift as well. Because if you are just a writer or you're just, um, you know, a character or personality influencer, whatever you want to call it, who has like a large active group of smart, interesting, creative people hanging out in a place. Well, suddenly that becomes much more valuable to engineers who you basically become a supplier of culture. You become a supplier of users. And, and all of a sudden the, 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 the wages that that commands on Urbit are, are seem to be, in my view, if I'm right, are going to be much greater than they do in, in the Web2 system. And so I'm already starting to think about this. I'm already starting to see a near future where like because I because the other the other life group is one of the fastest growing groups on on the network. And because I have this kind of public media footprint, I'm, I'm starting to think through like oh wow you know i could actually start just I, I could i could launch a startup where i i'm a co-founder with an engineer and we build some like really badass crazy custom thing for my users that's kind of what i'm providing is the culture of the onboard the onboarding the users and all of a sudden now as just a creator with only a mildly you know i have a moderately you know successful growing audience or whatever but i'm not massive right i'm not like some kind of uh you know massive super famous guy or anything i i can start to see like oh wow i can have a tremendous um, exposure to upside in creating value on Urbit in a way that creators currently just can't even fathom. It's a really strong thesis. Um, it's making me think a lot. It ties in very, very clearly to what you've called social AI. I called the mundane singularity and then tried to change. And then people like that. So I have to stick with it now. So, but yeah, basically this idea that our conception of what is required to make software happen is extremely constrained by the current economic limitations of software production. And once that those are removed and it can be done in these more smaller custom ways, just all bets are off. And we've seen this a lot of times in computing. We just haven't seen it as much with software. We saw it, I think everyone thinks of the example of, you know, going from mainframes to personal computers in the 80s. And that being a big deal, and I can probably find examples in software, probably to some degree server-side programming represented that initially to some, to some degree, letting people just use their own languages and make web apps and get, the, and get them out. And whenever that happens, all like economic arrangements and relationships tend to shift really rapidly, right? And we've seen this so many times. And so the prediction that, well, a big part of my thesis is that 
developers are this incredibly valuable resource that sits somewhere analogously between like professional athletes and oil. Um, and I think the idea of creators being people who have access to them and if their energy can be activated without it having to be like raise $3 million and start a startup level activation and can just be like, Hey bro, I know you, can you try this little project like on the weekend for me? And then we'll see if it becomes like, you know, a product. If you can get it to that level of energy, a lot of things we assume about economic relationships and values of certain things change. And the other thing I want to say about creators that's so interesting that I hadn't thought to now is that I've been focusing a lot lately on all the ways in which we've already proved concept on a fully digitized world where most business workflows and processes are already done digitally just with SaaS products badly. Um, but I think creators, just the existence of that is this very clear affirmation of product market fit for people doing stuff where the only thing it does is like affect other people's minds with no physical like intermediary and people getting immense value from that, being willing to pay tons of money for that, uh, for that being seen as a thing. And I think that particular activity in all, both of its forms, like directing developer talent and finding products and making audiences and also just being an incredibly valuable, purely like circular form of economic activity where you don't need to refer to anything else. I think that's really powerful and could be a big part of, you know, this economy growing in, in the way that VCs are searching right now for with the games thesis, which I think is a total loser. I think this is like a much, much stronger thesis because they're looking for something where a thesis where value can happen purely digitally without needing any like real world connections. And the problem with it is that games are already fine and don't necessarily need assets. Whereas everything related to creators, their communities, gets much closer to capital formation, product creation, stuff like that. And is, I think, like just, just a much more interesting angle for that whole purely digitally circular thesis. Yeah, fascinating. I've also written about this, how I think, you know, this is why I hate the word creator. It's just such a kind of corny, weak sounding, like it's a euphemism really for something much more profound and much, much more promising. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I mean, what I've written about is that I think, I think what, what are euphemistically called creators are really kind of like proto statesmen. Like that's really where hmm. th that's really where it will go in, it, in its full development um, is, is will really be kind of the founders of fundamentally novel kind of cultural entities that at some level of development will compete compete with um, you know the the most powerful kind of community binding agents that we currently have, and this this feeds into the you know the network state hypothesis. And this is one of the reasons why I think the network state concept and and that framing it is quite useful because I do think that even if you're not thinking politically, even if you never think of yourself as a statesman or, or founding a state, you know the the really successful powerful creators are essentially these kind of cultural entrepreneurs who institute and found a, a kind of fork of civilization in a way, um, you know, it, we're only in the early stages of that, but taken to its logical extreme, like a forceful, charismatic, independent creator with an audience is essentially leading a, a novel fork from, from the inherited social code base, if you will. And then what is that, but, a, but, a, but a statesman, the founder, the founder of a, of a new, of a new state. And, and so I like, that's why I like the network framing logic, because I think that it kind of gives its proper weight to this uh, so-called creator economy. I can demonstrate the degree to which I agree with your thesis by, by noting that in the course of like doing what's essentially a startup and has a lot of technical components that I've been doing, I found myself needing to essentially become a creator 
in order to give the project the best chance. Like I'm literally out here tweeting and, you know, doing content creation on potting in a way that I don't think is easily outsourceable or would be useful to do. I don't think that's the recipe for every sort of startup creator, but I think that either becoming a creator with yourself or partnering with them is going to be this really big winning move for people who make the next uh, sort of, you know, big stuff. Well, what we would usually think of as founders. I think it's actually essential to be your partner with a creator. Right, right, totally. And that, that's just going to get supercharged by these new economics on Urbit, as we just talked about. So yeah, totally agree. Tim, this was awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. We covered a lot of ground. I think people are going to find this very interesting and stimulating. And I think it gives people a really good insight into what's coming on Urbit. There's a lot of incredibly exciting stuff coming up. From what I know about what's coming around the months of assembly, a lot of stuff is going to be showcased and launched uh, around September for uh, the assembly conference in Miami. There's a, there's a ton of stuff. I keep telling people, like, I just feel really blocked right now by how much stuff I know will get released then that I can then talk about, but that, like, is sort of hard to talk about when people can't see it for themselves. And so I'm just trying to do everything I can to get ready for that and talk about other narratives and, like, get in the, you know, ETH FUD wars on Twitter until that happens and we have stuff to show. Yeah. <laughs> well... Well, this gives people one good window into one of the biggest and most exciting projects um, that will, you know, be showcasing some really interesting, uh, you know, new features being shipped around the time of September. So everyone just be on the lookout for that. I'll be talking about this and, and writing about it and, and podcasting more about it. So uh, you can, you know, follow along with this podcast, but also go follow Tim's podcast. Um, it's, it used to be called Web Zero. Now it's called The Network Age. Uh, you should be able to find that they, they're running an old school RSS feed. So you might have to, you might have to go to Tim's Twitter or uh, go to my, go to the show notes below uh, to, to get it, but you should be able to get it on any podcast app. I'll put links to show in the show notes. Yeah. Everything we, you know, retweet everything on Twitter. So you can find me under my like pseudonym there of Basil Genève. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to put a link Basile in the show notes to Tim's Yep. I'll put a link in the show notes to Tim's Twitter. You can follow him on Twitter. And also I'm going to put a link in the show notes to the Ookbar uh, open group on Urbit. If you want to talk more about all the stuff with Tim or the other people on the team of Ookbar, they do host and maintain an open group that anyone can join on Urbit. So if you're an engineer or an investor or just anyone interested in learning more about Ookbar and what's going on and talking about it, uh, they're very welcoming to to interesting, you know, new people who want to learn more and talk more about it. So I'll put a link to the Ookbar Event Horizon group uh, in the show notes. So I'll put a link to all these things in the show notes so people can follow up how, how they please. So Tim, thanks again. This is really awesome. I think people are really going to enjoy it. All right. It was great. It was great talking about it, Justin. Cheers. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end. So you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. And it'll send you an Apple podcast. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show. And I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening. And thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.